2 Samuel chapter 24. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army, who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my lord the king still see it. But why does my lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and began, and began from Aroer, and from the city that is in the middle of the valley, toward Gad and on to Jazer. Then they came to Gilead and to Kadesh in the land of the Hittites. And they came to Dan, and from Dan they went around to Sidon, and came to the fortress of Tyre, and to all the cities of the Hivites and Canaanites. And they went out to the Negeb of Judah at Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword. And the men of Judah were 500,000. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him, and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel, he was working destruction among the people. It is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arauna the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. 
And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arauna the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word, as the Lord commanded. And when Arauna looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Arauna went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Arauna said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? David said, To buy the threshing floor from you, in order to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Arauna said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering, and the threshing sledges, and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Arauna gives to the king. And Arauna said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Arauna, No, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land, and the plague was averted from Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Is that better? I knew I was just yelling. I was like, I don't hear anything coming through the mic or through the speakers. So, but thank God I have a preacher's voice. So even if I didn't have this mic, I could get it done today. Uh, Once again, good morning, everyone. It is wonderful for us to be in the house of the Lord. And um, I have mixed emotions about finishing this series in the books of Samuel. It's been a joy to journey 
uh, through these two books of the Old Testament together and to see what God was doing in the lives of his people thousands of years ago and then to see how that still relates to us today and how God works in our lives as the people of God. This uh, series through the books of Samuel has told us the story of a transition of leadership for the nation of Israel. When Samuel began, the nation of Israel was under a particular form of leadership in their government. It was ruled by the judges. These were people who would be raised up by the Lord, first and foremost, as military deliverers. And they would deliver God's people from their enemies and establish peace in the land. And then they would judge or lead or rule God's people for a period of time. But in the books of Samuel, God's people experienced a transition away from leadership through judges to what is called a monarchy, ruled by a king. And so this this series through Samuel has shown us how that transition took place. And it focuses in on the reigns of Israel's first two kings. The first one is King Saul, of course, who you could rightly say was kind of the people's choice for king. They were clamoring for a king like all the other nations. They wanted somebody who was tall, somebody who was imposing, somebody who was strong and could lead their military. And God said, that's what you want. You can have them. And they got Saul and Saul led the nation, but it was very quick into his rule that you started to see that things weren't right. He was a man whose heart was far from the Lord. And so God anointed a young shepherd boy named David and said, this is a man after my own heart. And God raised David up to take over after Saul's death and to lead the nation in justice and in equity, to represent God to his people. First Samuel ended with the death of King Saul. And you would expect that second Samuel might end in a similar way. Hey, tell us how David died. How did his life end? And if not that, you'd at least expect that 2 Samuel would end in some epic fashion where where David goes out on this kind of high note and we're all left marveling at what an amazing king and what an amazing man he was. Yet on an initial reading, it doesn't seem like that's what we're getting at all. I titled this morning's sermon, An Unexpected Ending, because I think that's what we're getting here in 2 Samuel 24. One Old Testament expositor begins his commentary on this chapter this way, and I quote, he writes, what's the worst ending to a book or a movie that you can imagine? At first glance, 2 Samuel 24 seems like a contender, end quote. I think there's some truth to what he's saying. You look at this chapter, and again, you go, weren't there some better places in David's story where the author could have wrapped things up? I mean, even last Sunday's text, chapter 23, feels, at least to me, like a more appropriate place to end the story of David. We had David's farewell address to the nation. It was powerful. It was beautiful. And and then after that, we had a record of his mighty men, all these strong warriors and all these valiant feats that they had done in the land. That seemed like a great spot to say, okay, we're done. Story's over. That's David for you. But what we'll see today is that this chapter is in fact a suitable ending to the story of David because this chapter shows us David in his true form. It's an accurate picture of the David that you and I have come to know through the stories of Samuel. In this chapter, we're reminded 
very vividly that David is a lot like you and he's a lot like me. He's a sinner. He disobeys God's commands. He does things that he ought not to do. And those sins have consequences. But what we've learned in our studies through the books of Samuel is that the thing that made David great was not his moral perfection. It wasn't that he always got it right. No, what made King David great is that even though David was and is like us, he was a sinner, he always came to his senses and he confessed his sin and he repented and got back on the right track in his walk with the Lord. We see that here on display in chapter 24. The story begins with David making a sinful and costly decision. This is in verses 1 through 9. David makes a sinful decision. As I mentioned, David is a lot like you and he's a lot like me. Every one of us, no matter how long we've walked with the Lord, we are all prone to sin. We all are faced with temptation And even if more often than not, we're good at resisting temptation and saying no to temptation, we at times make sinful decisions. We yield to the temptation. And David does that here in the opening of chapter 24. David instructs his general, Joab, to go out throughout all of the land and to to take a census of the people. David wants a head count. I want to know how big and how strong my kingdom is. So Joab, leader of my army, you go out and get a head count. This is David's decision. But interestingly, the author traces the cause of David's sinful decision here back further than David's own interior life. Did you see that in verse 1? Look at verse 1 again. Again, it says, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, go number Israel and Judah. So here's the setting as chapter 24 begins. Israel has done something again, we read, that has been cause for God to be angry with them. And God is ready to judge Israel because of some unexplained sin that we're not told about here. But what we know is that God's anger was once again kindled against them. In other words, the nation of Israel is on a collision course as this chapter starts with divine wrath. God is ready to bring judgment on his sinful people. And so to do that, in verse 1 we read that God leads his king, King David, to do something disastrous, to conduct this census. He incites David against Israel. David is going to be the cause of Israel's problems here. Now, in the New Testament, in the book of James, chapter 1, verse 13, we read this. It says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. He himself tempts no one. So we know that. We know God doesn't tempt people to do evil. And yet here we're reading in this first verse that it is God himself who incites David to bring calamity on his people, to conduct this census, to do something that David's going to ultimately say was sinful later in the chapter. How do we reconcile that? God tempts no one, and yet God is inciting David 
into what will ultimately be a sinful act. Well, how do we reconcile that? Well, first, we need to know this. There is nothing inherently sinful about conducting a census in the Old Testament. In fact, later kings after David are going to conduct censuses, and there's not going to be any judgment that falls on them for it. You can see some examples of this. I'll just give you the reference if you're curious. But 2 Chronicles chapter 17, verses 13 through 18 is one example. Or 2 Chronicles chapter 25, verse 5 is another example. Not only do we see these later kings conducting censuses and, and not experiencing judgment for it, but if you actually go back to the law of Moses in the book of Exodus, Moses himself gives instructions to the nation on how to properly conduct a census. This is in Exodus chapter 30, verses 11 through 16. So even if God did entice David to conduct this census, God is not here directly inciting David to sin. Sin will only occur if David conducts the census in the wrong way, meaning violating the rules that Moses gave in Exodus. So only if David does this in the wrong way, or, and in this story, this seems even more likely, if he does it for the wrong reasons. So that's the first thing. There's nothing inherently sinful about conducting a census. But second and more importantly, in the parallel passage to this chapter, which is found in uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 21. So it's in Chronicles, 1 Chronicles 21, it's telling the exact same story of David conducting a census. And in that passage, we learn that it's actually Satan who is instigating this and who is inciting David to number Israel. Here's 1 Chronicles 21.1. It says, then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So in Chronicles, it's Satan is inciting him. In Samuel, it's the Lord is inciting him. Well, what's going on here? Well, what's going on here is very similar to what's going on in the opening chapters of the book of Job. If you've ever read the story of Job, in that introductory chapter, we find that Satan wants to tempt Job. Satan wants to draw Job away from the Lord and he wants to come and entice him to sin against the Lord. And God ultimately permits him to do it. God allows Satan to go and to tempt Job. And the reason why God allows him to do it is because this also serves God's purposes for Job and in Job's life. And so here, like the story of Job, it is Satan who is the one who directly tempts David in this way. But God allows him to do it because it serves God's purposes as well. Namely, God's purpose of wanting to judge Israel for her sin. And I love this because it reminds us that even Satan's purposes are folded into God's. Our God is so wise... And he's so sovereign and so in control of everything that even the things that Satan intends to do, Satan has these ideas of the, the, the havoc he's going to wreak in the world or wreck in the world and the things he wants to do in your life. And God is able to even work all of that into his purposes and bring about good outcomes in your life if you're a believer and in the world. Satan is not unlimited in power. Satan does not, he's not free to do whatever he wants. 
God is the only one who's unlimited in power. God is the one who is in control of all things. And here God is using Satan's intentions for evil to ultimately accomplish his purposes. And so Satan here is inviting David to number the people of Israel and it ultimately leads to calamity. Now if it's true that there was nothing inherently wrong with conducting a census, then we've got to ask ourselves, well, why was this census wrong? What happened here? What went wrong that brought about judgment on the nation? Well, the text doesn't tell us the answer directly. So we can't know for sure what was exactly wrong with David's census here. But one plausible idea is this. If you'll notice, when the census is tallied up at the end and the results are reported back to David... The census ultimately was only of fighting men. Notice it was 800,000 fighting men of Israel and 500,000 fighting men of Judah. And so David was really actually trying to take a census of his army. I want to know how big my troops are. I want to know how strong my military is. Hey, Joab, go find out how many guys I'm in charge of, how many people I'm commanding. So, So what could be going on here is this could be an issue of human pride. This could be an issue of trusting in your own strength and your own resources rather than the Lord to deliver you. And friends, if you've been with us through the study of Samuel, you'll know that one of the themes throughout the books of Samuel has been that Israel at her very best was always looking to the Lord to be her deliverer knowing that it was God who could save. It was God who would bring them victory. And God could do that with many soldiers or God could do that with few soldiers. This is illustrated really well, actually, in the story of Jonathan and his armor bearer back in 1 Samuel chapter 14. In that story, Jonathan and his armor bearer, so just two guys, they see a garrison of Philistine soldiers up on a hill. So there's dozens of these enemy soldiers. They have the high ground. They're fortified. And Jonathan says to his armor bearer this, he says, this is 1 Samuel 14, 6. He says, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or for saving by few. Jonathan gets it. The Lord could work deliverance for us because he doesn't even need us. He can save by a large army or he could take two guys like us and he could overthrow this entire garrison. And they went and charged the garrison and God gave them victory. Perhaps then David and the nation had become a bit intoxicated by their own success. David was a mighty warrior. David was a great general. As we've studied David's reign, he was constantly destroying their enemies. And perhaps here later in his reign, again, he and the nation have been a little bit intoxicated by their successes. And maybe then they've begun patting themselves on the back for their victories. David here is wanting to take stock of how big his army is. Again, Joab, how many men are at my disposal? Joab, how do we add up in comparison to all the other armies around us from these surrounding nations? Now, what's really surprising in the text is that Joab, who's not been the most moral man, uh, not been the most spiritually discerning man throughout the stories of Samuel, he becomes the voice of reason in chapter 24. Look at verse 3 again. 
But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my Lord the king still see it. But why does my Lord the king delight in this thing? Joab's like, David, listen, man, I wish that your kingdom multiplied by a hundredfold. I really do. But why do you want to do this? Clearly, Joab is recognizing that there's something off about this census and what David is trying to accomplish through this census. And so he protests it and he pushes back and he's just trying to say, David, don't do this. There's no need for this. But David is adamant and he demands Joab. And so for nearly 10 months, Joab conducts this census. He goes all throughout the whole nation from Dan to Beersheba. And then he comes and he reports back to David the results. And they are staggering. David commands a fighting force of 1.3 million men. This is a massive, massive army for this time and place. This is a gigantic army today. 1.3 million men ready to go to battle, armed and ready. Now, scholars point out that it's notoriously difficult to understand the exact unit measurements in the Hebrew text. And so through, all throughout the Old Testament, when numbers are thrown out, scholars are always saying, we're actually not totally sure how to understand these unit measurements. And so a lot of scholars actually here argue this force was probably significantly smaller. But you need to know this, even if you dropped a zero, 130,000 men, was a massive fighting force at this time and this place. And so David's census would have sent a clear message to him, to all of his people, and even to all of his enemies. What was the message? Here's the message. I am strong and I'm secure. I've got a massive army that I'm in charge of. But friends, all human confidence is misplaced as the story makes clear. Because if the Lord is against you, then all the manpower, all the money, all the brains in the world are going to be of no help to you. I mean, the story's so great because here's David boasting in the massive army he has. But what good is an army if the Lord sends a plague? It does nothing for you. And this, of course, is exactly what God does. And God's judgment here in this chapter reminds us of the consequences of sin. And they're shown to us very clearly in this next section, verses 10 through 17. Let's begin reading again in verse 10 and unpack this together. It says, But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. 
So for 10 months, David's conscience is unbothered while this census is taking place. Joab and his commanders are going around, they're numbering all the people. David's not bothered. But once the census is completed and the numbers are reported to David, look again at verse 10, David's heart struck him. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. David here finally realizes, I've made a mistake. I should have never conducted this census. Numbering my troops was sinful. And so David asks the Lord to take away his iniquity. He's saying, God, remove my sin. God, cast my sin far away from me. Don't count it against me. Don't hold my sin against me. Now, what I find fascinating here is that oftentimes in the Bible, when somebody sins against the Lord, God sends judgment in their life to try to awaken their conscience, to try to help them to see, oh my gosh, I have sinned and this is serious and I need to repent and confess my sin and get back on the right track with the Lord. David's sin with Bathsheba was like that. David sins, he commits adultery, he tries to cover that up by murdering her husband. And then for about a year, David just harbors that sin. He doesn't confess his sin, he does nothing with it. And so God sends the prophet Nathan into the palace to confront David. And Nathan announces to David that judgment is going to fall on him and on his household. And it's only after he learns that judgment is coming that David owns his sin and confesses it and begins the process of repentance and reconciliation. That's how it oftentimes works in the scriptures. But notice here in this text, David is able to see his sin for what it is before God ever sends judgment in his life. The census happens, and David is convicted at the core, and he cries out to God, confessing his sin and asking for mercy, and yet God still sends consequences. Why would God do that? Well, sometimes, even when we confess our sin and we repent of it, God still allows consequences in our lives to remind us of the seriousness of sin. It could be quite tempting as children of God who know that we're saved by grace and not by our works. It could be tempting to begin to presume on God's grace. And to, in the the battles that we have against temptation, to just reason to ourselves, well, hey, I can give in to this sin. I can yield to this sin. And after I do, all I got to do is just say I'm sorry and God will cover me and there will be no consequences from this. And if that was your pattern as a child of God, you might find yourself becoming really, really, really lax with sin. And so it is the case that oftentimes, again, even as children of God, When we sin, even if we acknowledge it for what it is, we confess our sin and we begin to repent of it before judgment ever comes, that God still allows consequences in our lives. And God does this because he's teaching us to fear him. God does this because he's teaching us to hate sin as much as he hates it. To never presume on grace and never assume that sin is trivial and meaningless. God wants us to fear him. God wants us to keep his commandments. And so God brings judgment here. But it's a really interesting story. God says, you know what, I'm going to give you three choices. What a terrifying situation that would be. Like, 
you messed up, Daniel Hooper. Here's your three options. Pick your poison. I would be terrified. And David's terrified. He says he's distressed. But God gives him three options through the prophet Gad. He says, number one, you can choose three years of famine. Now, a few chapters ago, we saw a different time when Israel experienced three years of famine, and it was horrible. It was distressing. Many people died. So God says, we could, we could run it back. We could do that again. He says, or you can get three months of fleeing for your life from your enemies. This has happened to David before too. Absalom usurped his throne. He was on the run for his life. And God says, we could run that back. We could do that again. And you could be on the run for three months from your enemies, probably talking about some foreign invasion. And then finally he says, or we can do three days of pestilence. I can send a plague throughout all of the land of Israel. The choice is yours, David. What do you want? And David is distressed. David decides that all of these seem like bad choices. David genuinely doesn't know which is the kind of the lesser of three evils here. I mean, when you stop and think about it, every option results in a lot of death. If a famine is in his land for three years, tens of thousands of people will die. Everybody will suffer. If David has to flee because some foreign enemy has invaded the land and they're on the run, people will die. Even in Absalom's rebellion, when they finally had a battle, 20,000 people died in that battle. So David knows that's a, that's a bad option too. And of course, if a plague or a pestilence sweeps through the land, there's no telling what the casualty count could be. So, so David just, he's, he's overwhelmed and he just says to the Lord, and I actually really love this, he says, Lord, I know you to be merciful. And so I just want you to decide for me. David knows enough of the character of God that he just says, look, I just want to fall on your mercy. I know judgment's coming. I don't have the wisdom to figure it out, but I trust your heart and I'm going to let you decide for me. I'd rather fall into your hands. And so the very next morning, the Lord sends a pestilence on the land. And according to verse 15, 70,000 men die in that three-day span. That's heavy. 70,000 people dead in a matter of three days. Sin has consequences. We know this. We talk about it often in, from the scriptures. It has consequences. But this is a great reminder of what the ultimate consequence of sin is. Here are the consequences of Israel's sin and David's sin is death. And is this not what God told our first parents in the Garden of Eden? Is this not what he said sin would result in or would lead to? God said to our first parents, listen, I, I've put you in paradise. I've given you everything you'll ever need to be happy and to flourish and to be blessed. And you have me. He says, You have food in abundance. There's trees galore. You can eat out of any of them. But here's Genesis 2.17. God says, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God announces from day one that the, the, the real ultimate thing on the line when we sin, the real consequence is going to be death. Paul reiterates this in Romans 6.23. He says, for the wages of sin is death. Anybody ready for some good news though? He says, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Israel has sinned. 70,000 people have paid for it with their lives. 
And just as it appears that things were actually going to get a lot worse, and the death toll was going to keep on climbing, the Lord brings all of it to a halt. Look at verse 16 one more time. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel, who is working destruction among the people, it is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. So just as this angel, who is the instrument of God's judgment at this moment in history, just as he gets to the outskirts of the holy city of Jerusalem, God says to him, enough. Stop. That's enough. You're no longer going to keep destroying. But David is not aware of this conversation between God and the angel. He doesn't know. In fact, in Chronicles, David sees the angel with his hand stretched out with a sword in it. Here's 1 Chronicles 21, 16. And David lifted his eyes and he saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven and in his hand a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. And then David and the elders, clothed in sackcloth, fell upon their faces and they prayed to the Lord. The prayer, of course, is here for us in verse 17. David spoke to the Lord when, the, when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. So, so the Lord is telling the angel, let's push pause here at the outskirts of Jerusalem. But David doesn't know that. He sees an angel with a sword over Jerusalem. David thinks that this is going to destroy now his capital city, and all the people in it, and he cries out to the Lord. David is overwhelmed here as he sees the way that his own sin is affecting so many people. 70,000 have already died. Many more are likely to die when this angel strikes Jerusalem. And what does David do at that moment? He offers himself. He says to the Lord, let me take the judgment. He says to the Lord, let your hand, speaking of God's judgment, let your hand fall on whom? He says, on me and on my family. This is a powerful moment as David here intercedes on behalf of his people. I love this observation from Tim Chester. I want to read it for you. I'll put it on the screen. He says this, and I quote, he says, God relents, judgment is suspended, but that prayer hangs over the house of David. It's awaiting an answer. It's a prayer that haunts history. These are but sheep. I am the shepherd. Let your hand fall on me and my family. Then he writes, a thousand years later, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus says, in effect, I am the son of David. Let your hand fall upon me. Jesus sees the judgment of God hanging over the people of God, hanging over you. And he's heartbroken. He cannot bear to see it. So he offers himself as the sacrifice. Let your hand fall on me, says Jesus. End quote. Notice then that in verse 17... David's shepherd-like heart actually points us forward 
to the good shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this prayer of David, where he is the shepherd over these people, where he wants God's judgment to stop. He wants mercy for the people. It actually brings us into the final movement of this story, which is the sacrifice for sin in verse 18 and beyond. Look at your Bibles again in verse 18, and let's notice now the sacrifice for sin. It says this, And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. So Gad, this prophet in Israel, is sent by the Lord to David to instruct David to do something. David, I want you to build an altar so that animal sacrifices can take place. And I want you to build that altar where? At the very place that the angel stopped on the outskirts of Jerusalem. In the First Chronicles version of this story, we read that this man, Orana, and his sons are actually threshing wheat at the threshing floor here. When they see the angel of the Lord and when they see David coming. And so this man pays, pays homage to David and he asks him, what are you doing here? Why have you come? In verse 21, Arana said, why has my Lord the king come to his servant? David said to buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. Notice then that God has made it clear to David that if he hopes for his prayer to be answered, that prayer that he's offering where he's saying, Lord, stay your hand. Don't let your hand be on my people. David knows now if that prayer is going to be answered, it is going to require sacrifices to be made. David must construct an altar and sacrifice animals to atone for his sin. That is the only way for the plague to be averted from the people. Now this man, Arana, offers everything that David needs for this sacrifice free of charge. He says, listen, I'll give you the animals. I'll give you the tools. I'll even give you the wood for the fire. You can have it all, David, even though David said he was going to buy it. And it could be that Arana here is just dem demonstrating his generosity and his submission to David, saying, hey, I want to just freely give this to you. If you have a need, David, you can use my stuff. You don't have to pay for this. It could also be, though, that Again, in the Chronicles story, we read that Arana actually was there with his sons threshing wheat and they see that same angel that David saw. Remember the one with his sword stretched out over Jerusalem coming with judgment in his hand? Arana saw that angel. So David's coming up the road and this angel standing between heaven and earth and he sees that angel and it could be that Arana was rightfully terrified and he looks at David and he basically says as he's fearing for his life and the lives of his son, Take whatever you need to get that dude out of here. You can have it, man. Just please don't let that guy come and kill me right now and my children. Whatever his motives, doesn't really matter because David won't take him up on his offer. Here's what David says in verse 24. He says, no, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. What's David saying here? He's saying in order for a sacrifice to be a sacrifice, it has to be costly. 
If it doesn't cost you anything, you've made no sacrifice. David knows that. He says, listen, I'm I'm not looking for a free handout here. I I am going to purchase these things myself, make them my own so that I can actually even offer them to the Lord in exchange for my sin. And so David does that. He buys the threshing floor and the oxen and he does what God commanded him to do. Look at verse 25. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. So in response then to David's sacrifices, where these animals are slaughtered on this altar in the place of the sinner, God's judgment ceases and the plague is averted from the land. So friends, don't miss this. Here's what we have in the final chapter of David's story as told by the books of Samuel. David sins, God brings judgment, and David offers sacrifices that remove God's judgment. In the final chapter here, what do we have? We have a picture of the gospel. The message of the gospel is that you and I and every person on earth has sinned before God. And our sin is significant when we have failed to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and when we have failed to love our neighbor as ourselves, that matters. You and I, through our sin, are bringing about real-world damage to other people that are created in the image of God, and therefore all of our sin brings God's judgment. And the only way for God's judgment to not fall on you and not fall on me as sinful people is if we have a suitable sacrifice to be offered in our place. And of course, that's the message of the gospel. Notice that it was God who initiated this altar building and this sacrifice. He's the one who said, Gad, go to David and say, build this altar here and offer these animals. And in the same way, it was God himself who initiated the sacrifice for your sins We didn't bring Jesus down from heaven to die on the cross for our sins. God sent his one and only son. He gave us his one and only son because he loved us. Because he was willing to forgive us of our sins through the sacrifice of Christ. And so in this final chapter, we have this beautiful picture of the gospel. And it's amazing. But there's still one more important piece to the puzzle of why this ending to the books of Samuel is so good. Truly, it's where the story reaches its pinnacle. Here's the point. The threshing floor of Orana is a very significant place. In 2 Chronicles 3.1, here's what we read. Then Solomon, so this is David's son and the next king of Israel. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. He's talking about the temple that Solomon builds in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David, his father, at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan, which is another name for Arana, the Jebusite. Again, Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David his father at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan or Arana, the Jebusite. So this very site where this altar is constructed in 2 Samuel 24, 
where sacrifices are made for the people of God is Mount Moriah. Now, if you rewind a thousand years in Israel's history before David, you will find a story in the book of Genesis where Abraham, the father of the faith, goes to a place called Mount Moriah to sacrifice his one and only son, Isaac, on an altar before the Lord. And right before the hand that has the dagger in it is going to execute the judgment, just like this angel is standing outside of Jerusalem with a sword in his hand, right at that final moment, God tells the angel to stay his hand. And God provides another animal, a ram that's caught in the thicket, to be the sacrifice in Isaac's place, and thus he is delivered from judgment. And this Isaac, who's delivered through judgment there, is the one whom the nation of Israel herself would come from. And so Abraham is at Mount Moriah about to offer his son as a sacrifice. Now a thousand years later, as this plague is making its way onto Jerusalem, it's at that same place, Mount Moriah, that David here builds an altar and offers sacrifices for the people so that they do not have to experience God's judgment. But notice in 2 Chronicles 3.1, if we can put it back on the screen, Mount Moriah becomes the place that Solomon constructs the temple. In other words, Mount Moriah is the place where ongoing sacrifices are offered for the sins of God's people for another thousand years at the Temple Mount. And friends, don't miss this. It is this very place on a hilltop outside of Jerusalem, near the Temple Mount itself, that Jesus died on a cross for your sins and my sins so that we do not have to experience the judgment of Almighty God. Thus, in this final chapter of David's life, we see with such clarity the big point of the books of Samuel, that this man David, through his life, And through his work was always meant to point beyond himself to his greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Here in 2 Samuel 24, David, God's anointed one, offers a sacrifice here at Mount Moriah that removes God's judgment from God's people. It stops death in its tracks. And this is exactly what Jesus did. Jesus, God's anointed one, offered himself as a sacrifice here beside Mount Moriah that removes God's judgment from God's people. It literally stops death in its tracks. And so from one perspective, you can read 2 Samuel 24 and ask this question. What's the worst ending to a book or movie that you can imagine? At first glance, 2 Samuel 24 seems like a contender. And yet from another perspective... You can read 2 Samuel 24 and see it as the perfect and fitting ending to the story of David. Because in it, we are reminded of what made David great in the first place. And as I said, it was not his moral perfection. It was not that he always got it right. It was that he had the ability to take his sin time and time again and own it and confess, with, confess it, and turn from it, and deal with it according to God's law, and find grace and mercy in his time and need. And it was the unique way 
in which God chose this man, this humble shepherd boy, to become his anointed one who would point forward with great clarity to the Lord Jesus Christ who God would send into the world to be our Savior and Lord. It's amazing. So what an awesome book we have studied together, the books of Samuel. And may God take the message of the books of Samuel and hide it in our hearts and grow our faith and grow our worship and grow our wonder. Amen? All right, let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the ways that every single passage of scripture speak to us. There is no throwaway chapter in the Bible. And God, we are so grateful that you've helped us to see that through 1st and 2nd Samuel. God, today we are abundantly grateful for this amazing picture of the gospel that we see in 2nd Samuel 24. This reminder that we, like David, have sinned. And our sin brings about your judgment. Ultimately, it brings about death, physical and spiritual. And yet you yourself have initiated and provided a sacrifice for our sins so that your judgment can be averted and we do not have to experience death. God, thank you for these reminders today. God, we pray that you would stir up our affections for you. That God, we would put all of our hope and our trust in you. Even as Nate read for us at the start of this service from Psalm 121, where the psalmist asks this great question. He looks to the mountains and he says, where does my help come from? And the answer is that his help comes from the maker of heaven and earth. God, would you help us this week to look to you and you alone to be our help, to be our deliverer, to be our savior, the one who has paid for our sins and delivered us from death. We love you, we honor you, we worship you today in Christ's name, amen.